Hey, welcome to the right... Nope. <laughs> How many times have I done that? It, it wouldn't be a Carl if you didn't mess that Dude, up. Dude, I'm though. staring at the words. Welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club, <laughs> a music podcast from the right Ricky Sanchez. You should do the intro. Do it. Uh, who are you? Who am I? You do it. Go ahead. You want me to, uh, yeah. Welcome to the Carl Landry Record Club. There. See. I am Mootlu, 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 and that is my pal Spike Eskin. What up, yo? What's up, man? Our intro music is from Marion Hill. Um, and Philly's own Marion Hill. Uh, we, I am doing the podcast from a hotel in New York City. Hey, yo, I'm a New hey, Yorker here. Hey, hey, New York, hey, hey, hey Gabagool. <laughs> uh, so, as as I I, I started, I like how you threw that in, like right the Gabagool. Which yeah, is, yeah, which is Capicola, right? Yes, that's Capicola. Capicola. Is it Capicola or Capicola? No, it's Capicola. I, yeah, Capicola. I, I think I think the Gabagool thing might be a North Jersey thing and not a New York thing, actually, because I, I heard Artie Lang saying Gabagool, and Artie is from I think Artie is from Union, so it's a type so. of smoked ham, is it not? Yeah, you yeah. know I love cold cuts. You know yep. I love sandwiches. You know yep. what I mean? People just walk around the street saying it all day long. It's like, hey, yo, <laughs> <laughs> so whatever. <laughs> So so here I am in a hotel room. I, I realized a hotel, there is something sort of nice about, and you, you've obviously done some traveling, about a hotel room by yourself for a night. But the second night is just, then you've made a mess with your clothes, and there's the trash from your Chinese food from the <laughs> night before. And... The second night of the hotel is not as nice as the first one is. I like the first one, the the, the tight-wrapped bed, the air conditioning that's on way too high, you know, all of it. I, I like all of it, but the second night, I'm not into it as much. I agree. As you go on each night, it becomes exponentially cruddier, you know? Like yeah. More, and more, if you're by yourself... Mm-hmm. It comes becomes a little more lonely or something. I don't know. It's yeah, like you feel more isolated. But the first night, everything's fresh. Oh come it's, on! I'm watching the NBA Finals last night. I'm eating yeah. Chinese food. I'm feeling disgusting. It was <laughs> just. You know, I I opened up DoorDash, and you know I I started after vacation. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna get back into eating healthier. But then I'm gonna be in hotel rooms a lot for the the next month and it's not easy so i'm like you know what i'm in new york fucking doordash i will find a a place to get something healthy and i tapped there's a vegan thing to tap and the the dangerous thing with the vegan button on doordash is that it brings up a lot of chinese food and thai food because there's a lot of vegan options there and wouldn't you know it there's a fucking han dynasty in new york too my kryptonite is dry pepper style tofu it's like fried oh tofu. i love it i love that oh. seasoning on anything yeah basically anything. love the dry pepper style no sauce just the spicy and oh yeah fucking oil and peppers you had nothing yeah. but peppers there's like 50 yeah. peppers in each yep bowl. The, the the chinese food red peppers just all yeah. chopped up in there with it. and i'm like do i really want to do this tonight <laughs> and i did and i'm just like a like a pig just eating the chinese food in my little tiny New York hotel room, sweating. And then <laughs> I got back to the room today, and I realized they told me a lot of the hotels here are still in sort of like three-quarters of the way back from COVID. So there's no housekeeping. Uh. Uh, so I got back to the room, 
and the Chinese food trash is still in the trash can and the oh man yeah. well, did you get a nice uh, like waft of uh, mm-hmm. dry pepper tofu yeah because yep. because there's no ventilation in that room unless no. you're opening the windows no but, uh, the windows aren't open you know so yeah I got the dry pepper this the uh, the and just just a and the spring roll wrapper just a reminder. <laughs> <laughs> that I couldn't even make it one night without becoming a disgusting pig all on my own here here in the hotel. Yeah, but you know what? As far as options, that's probably one of the best options you can find. I mean, but the only thing with that is it's a lot of sodium. A lot of sodium. You know? Sodium so- oil. Oil, 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 yeah. oil, 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 oil. Yeah, he's got. Oil. Yeah, he's, he's, oil. he's like mayonnaise or oil. Oil. <laughs> there's so, no, there's no, no oil. It's just oil, 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 oil. So anyway, so here, here I am in in my in my hotel room. Hey, the the Carl Landry Record Club, and I was gonna say something about your concert Friday night, but I'm not but doing that again. By not this, doing that it. time this airs, it's long gone. It's, it's long. It's gone. already happened. Yeah, long gone. Boy, I, I that concert you played at Daryl's room was awesome. I it was bet. off the Ooh. hook. Off wow. The hook. <laughs> so today's podcast. Or the the podcast in general is a music appreciation podcast, as you can see by the reviews on Apple. We we pick two albums that one of them is one of us is is an album that one of us Mootlure I loves, and then the other one is an album that you, the listener, love. You can suggest an album in the Apple Podcast reviews. Leave us five stars as a rating, and in the reviews, leave the apple the the not the apple leave the the album you want us to review, or do it at carlandryrecordclub.com and then grip it, rip it. And move on. Today's podcast, two albums. My choice is Failures, The Heart is a Monster, which came out in 2015. And the listener choice is Sam Fender's Hypersonic Missiles, uh, submitted by Apple podcast user Costco. The the review from Costco, I, I don't know if it's from the company, Costco or not, still waiting for BJ's and Walmart to also leave us a review. <laughs> But the uh, review says a great way to find new music. The Carl is fantastic. I've discovered, uh, I've discovered music in a ton of different genres through the pod. Spike and Mutlu have great chemistry and are incredibly open-minded to music they have not heard or may not have otherwise listened to outside of the pod. My suggestion: check out Sam Fender's Hypersonic Missiles. Um, for a guy who doesn't like Springsteen but likes artists who are heavily influenced by sound or something like Springsteen, Sam Fender is up there with Gang of Youths as a must-listen. So speaking of albums we've been turned on to, a recommendation, I don't know if you have listened to it or not, but I have listened to it, and it's very good. One of the early Carl Landry Club record, Carl Landry Record Club albums we did was Faye Webster's Atlanta Millionaires Club. I just aren't the same I used to make my bed But now I see no point in and she has a new album called I Know I'm Funny, Haha. <laughs> and it is, there's no evolution, but that's great because it's just another great Faye Webster album. I don't know if you've heard it, but if you haven't, you should definitely listen. Great, 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 great stuff. change the name and make it Yeah, I haven't uh, delved into that one yet, but I love Atlanta Millionaires Club. I think that was episode three, four. That was it was early on. Yeah, early, it was on. early so, on. So uh, yeah. yeah, she's got something 
really special, I think. Just uh, and I love, I lo- even in that title. That's one thing I took away from Atlanta Millionaires Club is like she doesn't take herself that seriously. No. I love, I love artists that have like a sense of humor about what they're doing. You know, I know I'm funny. Haha, is a great, <laughs> great. album. That's a great title. <laughs> She's fucking cool, man. That that's the one thing that I know that I take away from her records is that there is a a to your point a carelessness in a in a good way and a cool to the albums that it's not like she's doing something incredibly original but it also doesn't feel fake in any way you know it feels like what she's doing is really from the heart and uh not incredibly emotional music but you know what i mean like she's just doing it because it's cool and she enjoys it and i think she comes off as cool because of that yeah there's just an honesty a directness sort of an endearing quality and it, it comes through in her performances too. Like she's, it's. Yeah. There's never a performance that's overdone. She's not over singing. It's just nope. whatever her vibe is, that's what comes across in the studio. You can just tell her records that they're just having a lot of fun yeah. making those tracks. And uh, but yeah, I gotta check out that new one. I haven't had a chance yet. But uh, it's cool how it all. You know, we reviewed that record and now yeah. she got a new one. So are we yeah. gonna do that? Are we? Well, I mean, we got so many more listening records to get through. But are we gonna eventually? You know, I'm sure there will be a point where we review one artist's record and then another one comes out and we, we yeah. do that one. Or is that sort of uh, taking up too much real estate? No, I think I think having scaled back, now we only do two albums. When the Olivia Rodrigo album came out, we talked about it. That's right. When the Gang of Youth song came out, we talked about it. When the Gang of Youth album comes out, look, whether you want to talk about it or not, we're definitely going to talk oh, about it. No, I'm know? all in on that. When, when does that drop, by the way? There's no info. So the rumor is... I may or may not be reading, you know, Gang of Youth fan sites, and the <laughs> the rumor is that there will be an EP in July, and then there probably won't be another LP until Q2 2022. So EP first, so this is something I've been thinking about too, because I'm debating how to roll out music in the future. Yeah. It's just so different oh, now. Wait, it's, uh, hang on. I'm sorry. Wait a minute. Hold you on. okay? I tried to be. Hold yeah, on. Like, I tried to be really cool. Where'd you go? And grab a seltzer <laughs> while you were talking, and the the little fridge is too far away. So is, it is it a spindrift? Is it a spindrift or a Lacroix? Hold on. Just want to grab a seltzer. <laughs> just grabbing a seltzer. Hold on. Just grabbing a seltzer. Hold on. Yeah, Spike loves seltzer with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And got he loves all. He loves all. He got Yo, I got it at the bodega down the street. You know, I got a seltzer. Uh, you're already getting into the zone, man. You're already getting to that New York. Uh... Hey, the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. I like so, it. I like it. So, so you were talking about releasing music. It is interesting because they're doing it this way. Halsey has a new album coming out. It's going to be an album. They're doing big album release. I think I would rather Gang of Views put an album out, but who knows? Maybe they stretch the excitement over a year and a half as opposed to, you know, three months. Who knows? I'm, like, indecisive of, you know, as far as how I should go about it or even what the right, you know, approach is. And I'm not sure there is one anymore. It just feels to me like we're very much in a singles era. And you really see artists building heat, whether they've been around for a while or they're new, off a single or two. Yeah. And I keep seeing this trend where you see a single or two, then, I don't know, a few months later, there's an EP, yeah. and the album is like an afterthought, or it just comes much later for a lot of artists. Uh, you know, and I... But but there are artists, like you said, the Halsey record, that just go for the gusto and go for the record. So I'm, I'm wondering 
what, I wonder what the most effective way to get to people is because people don't listen to albums like that anymore. And the other thing that happens too is when there's an album coming out, like this is happening with the Wallflowers, or I, I think that album just came out, or it came out today. Oh no, it comes out Friday, I think. Is they've already released four songs off the album. It's gone quiet, it's gone cold, acting like someone's you don't know. We used to rumble, used to roar, whatever was doing it didn't before. Maybe a hot side in no So the album comes out, and I feel like I've I've heard half of it already. By the way, the songs are songs are really good so far sorry the the the, the bubbles seltzers, from the uh, yeah the bubbles yeah. yeah bubbles yo hey yeah Spike, um, you got a belch let it out man yeah well next time i will i See, will when you get, that's another thing new york i think you got to go yo yankees and burp you know and that's, then burp yeah 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 you gotta let it out you know so i'm thinking this about you if i'm if i'm thinking about if we're just having a conversation about mm-hmm. your career right here on the, <laughs> the podcast is that you are primarily a touring artist and many of the people that are coming to see you are coming to see you from songs that they probably already know, even though they want to hear new stuff. And sometimes when I see an artist that puts out an entire new record, you either have this frustration or this, you feel like you got to play songs from the new record, but you know people want to hear the other stuff. Right. And is there too much, is it maybe letting you off the hook a little bit if as you tour, you know, every month or two, you release a song or two, and you can just sort of work that in, and your touring life can just like be like this process of this ever-evolving playlist of music as people, you know, get to know the music. Is that possible too? I think that actually, for a lot of independent artists, myself included, is a better way to go. Yeah, uh, th- that's I'm still just brainstorming, but I think I'm going to try to put out a a single or two. Maybe just a song in advance of the fall tour. Let that kind of percolate. Yeah. Maybe uh, if I have a second song in the can, maybe do another one like during the tour. I don't know. And then maybe into early next year, maybe drop an EP. And then I, if there's going to be an album, maybe that comes on the next tour cycle. But I just, I feel like there's so much content that people are absorbing all the time. Yeah. Unless you're a, a big time pop artist who has massive reach and you know those songs all the songs they're gonna are gonna get traction i feel like you miss people if you throw too much at them right now with the way people absorb music now it's kind of a bummer because the whole thing with our pod is about album concept i love that we love that you know but there's a pragmatic aspect to releasing music now and i just i think what you just described is makes a lot of sense you go out you play you start playing a tune you drop a tune you know, uh, maybe later in the tour or later, a month or two later, you're playing some more shows, you drop another tune. And yeah. it's kind of like this organic thing that melds into your process of touring and playing shows. I I actually feel like each of those songs that you'll release will be more impactful that way than if you drop just like 10 or 12 tracks all at once. And it takes longer to do that, too, and it's more costly. Yeah. So, the Youngins don't really know this, but it wasn't always albums, you know, like... but it. Before the, you know, when you're talking about the 50s and probably a lot of the 60s and it was a single, you know, it was all it was all singles. It was all 45s. It was all like hits. That's what it all was. And these artists had huge careers on 
on singles, you know, single, 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 they would pump them out. So I love albums too. And, but I, I do think it does provide some, some like tempo and perspective to all of it. And, you know, and maybe you don't get sick of things as, and maybe you get to see how songs work on the road and maybe that changes your perspective of what you're going to release and how you're going to release it. You can be more malleable that way, you know? That's a great point, what you just said right there. Because to me, the best test of a song is to live with it, play it live, play it solo. I mean, that's just by default for me because I play almost exclusively solo. But if you have a tune that's working in a bunch of different cities, in a bunch of different contexts, solo, and people are reacting to it, you've got something. Yeah, There's been times where... I played tunes that I felt great about, but they didn't quite get the reaction. And maybe you can do something in the studio that enhances it. But nine times out of ten, if it's working, it's going to work live. And there's going to be something undeniable that carries over into the studio. So that's another way. Test it on the road, which most of us haven't had that luxury lately. You know, Maybe I'll write you a song and you'll play it on the road. See how how it goes. Oh, yeah. So when we were... When I had my awful band, we wrote two songs. And of course, I didn't write the music. I just wrote the lyrics. But I will tell you that the second song, I forget what the first song was titled. The second song, even though it had nothing to do with him, was titled Tony Blair after the (laughs) British prime minister. But the song had nothing to do... Nothing to do with Tony Blair. Are these tracks available anywhere? Can we... No. No. I, I... we, pre, pre-digital or pre-sort of streaming, definitely. But uh, Pre-streaming, yeah. It was, let's see, it was probably around 01 or something. That's 02. even pre-download, really. Yeah. That's still CD. I, right, right around, yeah. I, I think it's right around the Napster era when that happened. But the, there is a recording of our first gig. But our first gig was all covers. We didn't we didn't venture into writing songs until like our third or fourth gig. So so but there is a recording of our first gig. And is that on YouTube or no? My brother put it on Vimeo. I think it exists on Vimeo. Oh, okay, so but it's I, up there we haven't somewhere. put. It, but bro, I'm, I'm a disaster. <laughs> I'm just I'm sweaty with bright red hair and I'm t- t- twice the size that I am now, obviously, and in a little. Uh, Jenkintown Bar or Doylestown Doylestown Bar in the basement but the video I'll send if, if the video is online somewhere I'll send it to you okay. it's not good it's not good well not good. I mean but I'm sure it's better than you're giving it credit for me nope 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 probably Cause not because you, you you sell yourself short you're a good guitar player you have good time good rhythm which I think is I always say this about guitar playing to me the most important thing it's like can you keep time can you lock yeah. in a groove it's just like a drummer they're drummers that can play a million notes, but if they can't play the pocket well, to me, they're not a great drummer. So, I, I, I think I've told this story before, but our, our first gig was, I like the story, so I'll just tell it, and then we'll get to the albums. Our first gig, we opened up for Rick Allen, who did overnights at WISP, and he had a wow. band called Rick Allen and the Upsetters. Rick was a great singer, great guitar player, by the way, and he gave us the opportunity to open up. So we open up, we play the gig, and uh, he says to me, the following you know, Monday when I saw him at work, because I was on before him, he said that he goes, hey, you guys are, are pretty good. I'm like, thanks. He's like, but your drummer sucks. And oh, I'm like, no. <laughs> and he said to me, 
if people, he's like, it's a real problem, he said. He said, because if people go and see a band that has a bad guitar player or a bad singer, they'll say that that band had a bad guitar player or a bad singer. He said, if people see a band that has a bad drummer, they'll say that band sucks. And I, I thought that was a, a very wise thing to say, and I understood what he meant, you know. It's unfortunate. It, if I've heard Paul Simon say that the drummer is the most important yeah. musician in the band, that... Yeah, because the if the drummer is not good and the drummer is not locking in to the guitarist and keyboardist right. and bassist, everyone else, it, it doesn't matter how well everyone else is playing. It's a train wreck. Like yeah, because you're all following him, right, or her. Yeah, right. And when a drummer doesn't lock in or is somehow not dialed in, uh, and you're on stage in that situation, oh man, that's just a that's an uneasy feeling, you yeah. know. If if the yeah. tempo's not right or the something about the pocket is not right, it's. <laughs> Dude, I, I went back and I listened, and one of the songs we played was "Break Stuff" by Limp Bizkit, and he played it so fast. I mean, <laughs> so fast. And you know, sometimes you play songs live a little quicker, but Metallica plays like Fuel little quicker we this was not metallica playing fuel a little quicker this was like there's something wrong hey what's wrong with the cd why is it playing so fast like that's that's what we were and doing. then when you're the singer that totally destroys your vibe because yeah. you, you you know then if you have to rush to a level where you can't even really project the the, the lines and the notes out clearly and you're just you know scrambling to try to get it out that yeah. that it, it becomes exponentially worse as the song yeah. goes on. Like yeah. first thirty great. seconds to the last thirty seconds. Last thirty seconds you're just trying to like barrel through it. Yeah. <laughs> Not great. Not great. So anyway, um uh what was I gonna say? Uh oh, the albums. Let's go to the albums. So yeah. uh we'll start with mine. So mine was Failures, The Heart is a Monster, and we ended up doing this album because on the last episode when we were talking about My Bloody Valentine and that they had done a comeback album years later that was actually good, Failure is another band that did a comeback album years later, like a long time later, and was actually good. And the album, which is not their their most famous album, famous being a stretch, I guess, which is Fantastic Planet, The Heart is a Monster, we decided to do that from 2015. Failure is an L.A. band. I don't know. They're a little bit proggy, and they're a little bit grungy, and they're a little bit art-rocky or whatever. It makes sense after you listen to them to know that they toured with Tool a few times and that, you know, one of the guys in their band toward the end and even currently, Troy Van Van Leeuwen was in A Perfect Circle and is now in Queens of the Stone Age. It all sort of, when you when you describe failure and then you describe those connected bands, I think it, it makes sense. So they were never particularly popular. They did have a cult following that seemed to grow as after they disappeared. They started in the early 90s, and um, then they broke up in 97. And then... They were broken up from 97 until 2014 when this album, 
they got back together and they put this album out. And it seemed like when they got back together that they were bigger that the reunion, I was like, oh, I remember failure. But it seemed like people were more excited for the reunion than they ever were for failure in the first place, which I thought was was really interesting. So when they got signed and they did their first album, it was produced by Steve Albini, which is which I wanted to 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 talk to you about just in terms of producing. And that album is called Comfort, but they didn't like it because Steve Albini's whole thing is just sort of letting the band play. And he, he captures a very live sound and doesn't do much to it. And mm-hmm. I remember when I interviewed Chevelle, Steve Albini, inter- Steve Albini produced their first record as well. They, they had the same issue. And I think Chevelle sonically is in the same place. I'm just kind of curious from you what you look for in a producer. Because Steve Albini is a famous producer, but he doesn't seem to do much of anything so I'm, I'm curious what you look for that's such an interesting dynamic there because there's so many different things that can fall under what a producer does right i feel like if it's a band that's a working unit then it becomes more about song selection but also maybe helping the band discover first and foremost what are the best tunes but then arrangement-wise, like, are there things within the performances that will work more uh, performance-wise as far as maximizing this, the production? And I think sometimes bands, they, they might have been on tour, they might be working as a unit, but they're looking for the producer to help bring something extra musical, almost like right. a fifth band member. Let's say there's four members. You know, whether it's something in the arrangement, whether it's uh, something in the approach to how the tracks are recorded whether it's something about the performance Mm -hmm. and and i think a lot of the best producers are also musicians and sometimes singers and artists themselves like butch walker yeah you know it sounds to me now the kind of producer that steve albini apparently is i I wasn't aware of that i mean he's a pretty big name yeah i mean he uh nirvana he produced he's produced uh you know the pixies but that's his whole thing you hear about producers like this in different genres who just show up and they're just kind of there overseeing things, but it's really the engineer in the band that makes the record. You know, right. uh, you've, I've heard about producers. I've heard this about Rick Rubin. Yes, and Rick Rubin just doesn't even show up. Rick, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He doesn't even show up half the time. There was one band that kind of called him out publicly on this. I forget who it was. To me, but see, the way I've made records is different. Uh, like if I think of my album "Live in It." Uh, that was uh, produced by the by the late great T Bone Walk, rest in peace. T Bone was a multi instrumentalist, an incredible mm. musician, an incredible arranger. Was a good singer, and that was a two man collaboration with he and I. He was in the room playing with me on the tracks mm. and building the tracks up, and we did a layering sort of thing. So that is one type of producer where the producer's musical impact is right there in the tracks. But that's a little different for someone like a solo artist like me. But I've had the other experience where you go in and you're playing in the room with with musicians and there is a way that a producer can impact that recording uh, without just sort of standing around and just kind of being there and say, okay, let's get another take. Like, they can make suggestions. They can say, hey, try the tempo differently here or, you know, try this pocket a little differently here. Or, you know, there are those kind of things that someone who has a really good musical sense can listen and figure out how to elevate something, but I, but there are also the guys who are just kind of there, and just kind of hanging out and say, "All right, guys, another take, this, that." And I think that frustrates certain bands because they come to a producer 
looking for someone who, who has a sound in mind or is going to elevate the songs in some way. And you could you can hear by their follow up albums, you know, that that that's not what they wanted because they are a very produced band. There's a lot going in there. And I, I think sometimes that is that is taken as an insult or there's you know, I, every time I talk about Def Leppard and I say that I like hysteria the best. Like, oh, it's overproduced. I like Pyromania. Or when you talk about Metallica and you talk about the Black Album, people are like, ah, oh, it's, you know, it's too produced. I I think, I, I definitely don't think that's a negative. I think I you certainly could use production to cover up bad playing, but that's not what I'm talking about. And I, you know, the, the idea that you can't replicate the exact sound live, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You, you can have, you can play the song two different ways, but I... I love that they wanted more production and they, they wanted more going on and they wanted, I think it's like easier to create sort of an atmosphere and uh, a feel like a, a vibe if there's more production. And I, I thought their follow-ups were better because of that. And it sounds to me like, just to piggyback on what you said, it sounds to me like they were looking for someone yeah. who was going to help them build soundscapes yep. around their music. Because they yeah. have that in this album, mm-hmm. but if the if a producer comes in and doesn't have any ideas on how to do that, right, then it's kind of like, well, why is he there? You know? Well, and I think for a while, since he was such an, you know, a a popular name, that yeah. if a label had a cool alternative band they wanted to produce, they'd be like, oh, get Steve Albini, <laughs> regardless of whether. And this isn't to trash Steve Albini, who obviously must be good at what he does because he has a remarkable career. But you know, he, he was probably just a name to get for a little while there. You know, so so they ended up doing two more records before they broke up. The last one being Fantastic Planet, which again was not specifically popular in any way. There's a song called Saturday Savior on there that some people I'll might know. But it it was well-received, particularly, and it did, I think, over time, became more and more and more appreciated. So they they break up, and Ken Andrews ends up becoming a record producer, the singer, uh, and, a, and a, sound, a studio engineer, and, you know, mixed records and produced records for a while. And then they got back together in 2013 to to create, decide to get back t- together to create this, to make this record, and that they produced themselves, and that, by the way, they, they crowdfunded. So huh. there was no label behind it. They used, I think, Pledge Music was the name of the company, you know, like a Kickstarter type thing, and they raised the money to do it. And if I, I didn't copy any of the quotes, but there's a, a really good diary from the band about making the album, and the best, the best, like um, entry is the one from the drummer who talks about how excited he was when he got the call from Ken to say that he and the other songwriter were, he said he'd occasionally get a call from Ken about like studio work. So he figured that's what it was. 
and Ken started saying, hey, you know, he said, I forget the name, the other songwriter in the band, so-and-so and I, uh, and he said as soon as those words came out of his mouth, he knew what was going to happen. And he became like super excited that that there was going to be another project, which I thought was really cool that the drummer was excited to play on another project. That's not always the case this this far into the run, you know? Yeah, That's no. <laughs> and, and, and he was also worried about ruining what they had, which I thought was cool, too, for a band that, again, wasn't particularly successful, but they, they were obviously very happy with Fantastic Planet, how that ended up. So I there, there were two entries before we get to the, the songs themselves, I guess. But there are two entries from this this journal that I thought were good. One was from Ken Andrews, which I thought was interesting. He said, um, uh, brought on by the finality of something you've been working on for months, in this case, several years, in complete denial about the fact that one day you will no longer be in the process of making it, but instead you will be finished with it. When the seemingly arbitrarily picked finish date rolls around, that will be it. Wherever you are in the process, that is what will be called done. It's generally an awful time for me. And, um, you know, I, th- I think, like, I thought of Axl Rose when I read that, who, when he was writing Chinese Democracy, because no one, because he was so big and he never had this arbitrary end time, he never stopped working on it. And he ruined it. He eventually, like, that album, which has some good songs on it, is is a, a mess because because he never had a time to stop the process so this it is arbitrary and it does feel weird for the art to stop but it almost feels necessary for the you know for the album to be as good as it can be yeah there is a point where there's nothing wrong with being a perfectionist even an obsessive perfectionist yeah but there is a point where you can go too far and you almost suffocate the process or overthink certain things that are really good because you just get too close to it yeah and you yeah. lose objectivity again that's where a great producer can help you break out of that well get especially out of that vision especially when he's saying that they produced that, like they produced this record themselves right so so they didn't even have a producer to you know to do that for them which but it's tougher I, I can, when you do that see that's yeah. the thing when you self-produce yep. That gives you tunnel vision at times, and sometimes yeah. there does have to be that person outside of it that says you're getting too emotionally connected to this. Like you got to step away from it, because if you listen to the same mix a hundred times, after a while, it doesn't matter how good it is, it's not going to sound good to you. Right. Yeah. You're always going to nitpick something. So yeah, that's a slippery slope to go down. But then I know that feeling of when you're done, you're like, ah, is it really done? Ah, is it really good? Like that, that insecurity sets in. So it's an interesting album because it is. There's like these weird instrumental tracks in between like every third song, every second song that that I think add a lot. You know, I read reviews of the album and I, I saw a lot of people saying that like you could do without those and you could tighten up the album. But I think it adds to the soundscape, you know, feel of it. It. It um it seems like a um almost like a I've I've said this before but like a Ridley Scott space <laughs> movie is is what it sounds like it the album has a sound of dread and loneliness to it uh, and sort of like desperation but it it does feel 
futuristic in some way. Um, and, and I think those, those segue tracks really help do that and help create the mood. The, the few songs that are standouts for me, I really like the album and I like going back to it. Was the Hot Traveler is the, like the first song is one of those segs, but Hot Traveler is the first single. song the first full song of the album and just a driving melodic with a hook and all that kind of stuff but but almost like almost like perfect circle in that they take tool and make it in a more compact you know package in a more normal package and the the other thing the other song the other end of the album that i really like is a song called mulholland drive oh that was my favorite song It's so Hands good, down. right? It's amazing. It's amazing. And and there's there's definitely Beatles influence to that song. And uh, there was a quote from the drummer about Mulholland Drive. He said, Mulholland Drive is immediate. I get it. It's beautiful and big and majestically orchestrated. It's a total gem. Very slow, which if any of you know, those are the most difficult songs to play, mainly because of all the space between each note. All of that space makes it precariously easy to rush and or flub notes. Playing slowly is a fine art unto itself. And I think for a heavy album, it really uses piano well. Um, there's a song called I Could See Houses that uses piano and sort of acoustic tone as well. Too. I can see houses And I can see roads So it's a it's a keeper for me, and it's a shocker because it's a comeback album. But it ended up being a real keeper for me. Yeah, I'd never heard of them until you mentioned them in the last mm-hmm. episode. I love this album. This is probably one of my favorite picks of yours. I mean, oh this, wow, that's yeah. cool. This, because you know, it's interesting with this album. It's somewhere between like I hear the '90s alt rock sort of touchstones, mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel tethered to that. It's just got elements of that, but it's almost more like a psychedelic record and I, i'm with you i love the segues I, I even wrote here segway nine it sounds like if you're using a horror film or like a psychological thriller or something uh, there you go there you go you said ridley scott so that's yeah uh, and mulholland drive that that put me in that zone of like sergeant peppers or there's even kind of like a day in the life-esque yeah. kind of dissonant outro and that's one element musical element that i keyed in on they use dissonance in a really interesting way. I'm always interested in bands that can do that, whether it's rock, jazz, whatever. There are a number of songs where, let me think, uh, whether it's Hot Traveler, Pet in the Carpet, Come Crashing, where... There are moments where they almost get to this dissonant place. They never quite go over the edge, but they get right up to the edge of dissonance. 
Mm-hmm. And it's just the way they do it, it's really musical and compelling. Because if you don't do that right, it can fall off the tracks real quick. Yeah. But they have a way of doing that where the vocal will sit in kind of a strange place against the chords. Or there'll be something in the guitar that's almost dissonant. And I think the fact that they could do all that but still write really good melodic songs. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a happy medium between sort of this experimentation and kind of pushing the boundaries of like the tonality of what they do. But mm-hmm. then always coming back to writing songs like Mulholland Drive. And that, that one really stands out. It's distinctive on the whole album. It's kind of a departure from the rest of them. But but there's just good quality pop songwriting in this, too. There's great melodies in this. I just like the fact that they walk both areas where they're not afraid to kind of be adventurous, but they write good songs at the same time. It's not, Sometimes one thing compromises the other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I would agree with you, and it, it doesn't seem like they do here. And I, I actually think those segues in between songs allows them to make the songs more compact because they're they're doing that other they're doing a lot of other stuff in the things that aren't the songs. Right? Yeah, yeah. it's it's I, I almost can't picture the album without those segues. I, I just no. feel like it made the record complete, and it's not like a concept thing; it's just a sonic thing. Yeah, it's like a sort of a musical palate cleanser, you know? Yeah. And they always... I do feel like they took a lot of time and care to figure out what track was where in the order. Like, everything that comes after a segue seems very carefully chosen. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So there is, like, a feel that the whole record has top to bottom. But, yeah, this was... I mean, I'd never heard of these guys. This was just a total revelation. I guess you said they never really had, like, chart hits or commercial success. No, they, they probably had a couple of songs that popped up on Alternative or something or rock radio, but, like, it was never... They were never popular popular yeah yeah great band and great album uh great 10 mootloos from me 10 mootloos from you i said mootloos all the way Your, the streak is alive the streak right. is alive <laughs> listener album is i'm sorry we, we we bullshitted so much in the beginning and now we're uh <laughs> we're, this this listener album is sam fender's hypersonic missiles which was submitted by apple user costco Can you hold yourself so Yes, yes, I will yeah. take over here. Yeah, I really like this album. I'll try to be concise, you know, keep, yeah, it, you keep it in the zone. But uh, Sam Fender, Hypersonic Missiles, give a little background. Born in North Shields, Tyne and Ware, England in the spring of 94, so he's pretty young. Uh, he had somewhat of a difficult childhood. He kind of ba- bounced around between his mother and his uh, and his father and his, and his stepmother. But he came from a very musical family. His father, Alan, and his brother, Liam, are both singer-songwriters, both musicians, and they had a profound effect on the young Sam Fender. He began playing guitar at 10, writing songs at 14, and, ready for it, drum roll, please, his biggest early influences were Bruce Springsteen and (laughs) Jeff Buckley. Now, this is interesting. I hear a lot more of the Jeff Buckley. Dude, as soon as I listened... As soon as I like the first second, I was like, "Wow!" Like the Jeff Buckley is blaring. It's it's there. Yeah, yeah. It's undeniable. Yeah. The timbre of his voice, his phrasing, that sort of uh, controlled falsetto that that uh, Jeff Buckley would do. He has yeah. it. Uh, the, so yeah, I, I really think 
I, I did you? I didn't hear as much of the Springsteen thing. Uh, maybe in a few of the tracks, a little bit of a horn kind of thing. But uh. so, so there are a couple of songs. Dead Boys is one. Everybody around here just That's our It actually sounds influenced by the things that were influenced by Springsteen. It sounds one, whereas something like Gaslight Anthem or Killers or you know Gang of Youth sounds one step away from Springsteen. This, when it touches on Springsteen, sounds two steps away, and it sounds closer to that stuff. I think if you, we, we haven't done Gaslight Anthem. We'll, we'll do it, maybe my next pick. And you can tell Jane if she writes. That I'm drunk off all these stars and all these crazy Hollywood nights And that's total deceit But you should have married me And tell her I spent If you listen to Dead Boys and then listen to Gaslight Anthem, you're like, oh, it sounds like Gaslight Anthem, and Gaslight Anthem sounds like Springsteen, if that makes any sense. So it's, a, it's sort of a degree removed. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So the, I didn't yeah. hear as much of that. I just heard so much Jeff Buckley, which is part of what made me love it because he really has the vocal chops to to deliver those kind of performances. But it's a little more in a British rock kind of place. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's interesting getting into this record. Now, just a little more background. He started gigging young, like in his mid-teens. He started doing a little bit of acting. Then he got discovered by a manager, Owen Davies, who's also Ben Howard's manager, pretty successful British singer-songwriter. And he started, I guess, in 2013, touring uh, as a support act with Ben Howard and also touring with Willie Mason. Things were kind of taking off. And then he had to put his whole career on pause for a while because he had some sort of illness. He's never disclosed what it was, but it put him out of commission for an extended period of time. And I guess one of those things, sometimes when you have something that questions your mortality, it can sometimes spark incredible creativity. And it seems like during that time when he couldn't really perform is when he wrote a lot of songs and really found his voice as a songwriter so that when he finally got through his cover and, and, and was ready to start getting back out there, he seems like he had a lot of tunes locked and loaded. And his debut single was Play God, which is also on this record, really good tune. That was also the title track of his debut. He put out a few more singles, Friday Fighting, Leave Fast. Continue touring more as a support act for a number of artists, including Michael Kiwanuka, who's just a great artist. Maybe do one of his records at some point. Uh, but the breakthrough track was Dead Boys for him. And it's mm. interesting because it's such a heavy subject matter. I mean, he's basically talking about trying to process, process the loss of a friend to suicide. And, and just anytime you get into that realm, 
it's 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 a difficult subject to write about, but he does it really well. He does it really in a heartfelt way. And that track, actually, I really hear the Jeff Buckley thing. Uh, like you mm-hmm. were saying there, there's also another tune towards the end called uh, Leave Fast, um, where there's kind of this thing he does on the outro, and he, almost like he does that sort of ethereal Jeff Buckley falsetto. Um, one of the other tunes that really stood out to me was the title track. We love you guys. Bye. There's really sort of a hypersonic missiles, which is kind of a social commentary speaking on the ominous state of the world and this unease that we all feel. I just think that song is unique in its lyrical perspective in the context of something that's kind of this anthemic, arena-ready British rock. I haven't heard an artist that goes as deep into that territory with this kind of sound. I think it kind of makes him unique, and even just some of the apocalyptic lyrical imagery. You talk about Ridley Scott. Yeah. Cities like tumors all across the world. A cancer-eating mankind hidden in our blind side. They say I'm a nihilist because I can't see any decent rhyme or reason for the life of you and me. Those are some lyrics from... Uh, from the title track, Hypersonic Missiles. So, you know, he doesn't write a lot of love songs. His thing is social commentary. Uh, but I will say one thing. Here's a weird thing. You might find this bizarre. I see a parallel between his writing and Laura Jean Grace. Now, there's nothing. They're very different musically, mm. lyric, um, very different musically and vocally. But they both do one thing conceptually from a lyrical standpoint that I think I see a parallel in. Large and Grace is able to write social commentaries, but also within that commentary, write something personal, like right. somehow connected to something personal. And I think Sam Fender does that. It's much easier as a writer to commit all the way to a social commentary or to do something very personal, but to bridge the two is much more challenging. And I think he's able to do that on a number of songs here, and I think she does that in an incredible way. And uh, this is, I mean, I think he's only one EP, one album in. He's maybe released a few more singles, but I think he's a great artist that's going to be around for a long time. This was a great, you know, listener pick. So I'm, I, I know what we do here. It's positive. <laughs> Uh-oh. No, I... Uh-oh. So my initial reaction when I turned it on, believe it or not, was one of the the only albums I almost texted you right away to talk to you to tell you how how good it was. I think part of the reason I liked it so quickly is that it was so reminiscent of Jeff Buckley, hmm. but the songs were better than Jeff Buckley. Just more, I don't know about better. You know what I mean. The songs more focused more, in some ways than Buckley's yeah. tunes were. Yeah, yeah. You don't listen to the Jeff Jeff Buckley for for just wow, brilliantly written pop song but sam fender writes really really good songs i did like dead boys i like there's a song called uh leave fast which also mm-hmm. had a very very buckley-ish but when i listened to the album the second time it felt sort of like i i, I don't want to do this i'm just going to say why why i'm giving it grip it rip it and move on hmm, um, wow i thought i thought you were 10 moodles all the way on this n- no it's, it's going to be grip it rip it and move on which is not bad i enjoyed listening to it right there's something like that came across as empty to me about it. It just hmm. didn't it didn't resonate and maybe it was because I found it so like I was like wow, this is like if Jeff Buckley met The Killers hmm. and then met uh what was the other one I had in my head? 
Jeff Buckley, The Killers, and John Mayer, like all got together and put out a record. And that sounds like great. And and that's why immediately I think I, I loved it. But then it, it sort of fell flat and it went away to me. And it it almost, at the end of the second out, listen, like almost got a little annoying for me. So Now I wonder if that, uh, and that's interesting, I, I wonder if that's because I will say the production is not breaking any new ground. You know? No, and no, when you yeah. can hear like, See, I love Jeff Buckley, so I love a vocalist that reminds me of Jeff Buckley, especially on those two songs. It's it's over the top, like Leave mm-hmm. Fast and Dead Boys. But but I also wonder if it's because maybe because the vocal element is so recognizable and satisfying, but recognizable that maybe the production thing for you needed to be something a little more interesting or different. A little different. Yeah. Cuz this is very yeah. recognizable, classic, high level to me Brit pop British rock production. Uh you know, like Keen is different. Keen is more keyboard driven, but it's in that mm-hmm. place, you know, that which I love that sound. So maybe that's why I look past that. But it, yeah, it's not breaking any new ground production wise. I just think he brings a lot as an artist. And He's to a, me, that, a, tra- that, you know, transcended. A great singer and really good songs. But but it just emotionally, like something has to like touch me for me yeah. to really like it. It doesn't mean it has to be meaningful. It's just that something about music has to get me in this this didn't really there is a really interesting metallica just is like put out a re-release of the black album with like some covers and he did cover uh sad but true so it's on spotify it's definitely different definitely worth listening to there's also a miley cyrus and elton john nothing else matters on spotify wow and it's it's awesome i imagine uh, it's cool. It's definitely cool. She's leaned very deeply into like the horse rock singer chick <laughs> thing, and and she did it on this. It it's really good. I wish it was. I maybe wish it was a little. I don't know. It it, it didn't fulfill me the way I wanted it to. The Miley one, but the the Sam Fender sad but true is good. It's definitely good. There's a few sad but trues in there. Saint Vincent did a sad but true. Um, it's it's worth checking out. It's on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever, or if you want to actually buy it. It'd so. be interesting to hear him, and maybe he'll do this down the road, in a very different production setting. Mm-hmm. Much more, not the classic sort of rock sweeping, sonic sweep thing, but something much more pared down and spacious where he's yeah. really just front and center. There's not as much going on in the production. I think i'd be interested to see if he goes in that direction down the road sometimes that doesn't appeal as much if you're looking for radio play it's a, you, you compromise maybe that option to do something yeah. a little more personal but i'd be i'd be curious if he i have, I have a feeling he will because he's a live performer i imagine he plays solo sometimes i feel like if you perform solo eventually you make a record that's yeah. in that like more stripped down kind of direction so it's a grip it, rip it, and move on for me, and I assume ten moot loo for you. Ten moot loo's. I'm going to grip it and rip it and move on at some point. Trust me. You will. It's Trust a, I'm, me. Like, you don't need to. You don't need to. This it, is ten moot This is even a hundred moot loo's for me. I don't know. Sometimes I like to multiply them. You know. Wow, a hundred moot loo's. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot of moot loo's. A trillion moot loo's. Not this one, but there might be a trillion moot loo's at some point if I really am just over the top. Well, I know we're not talking about it, but good luck on Friday night. Thank you so much, man. I'm excited, pod, a little nervous, so. but I'm excited great um all right we will uh that's it that's all we got we'll talk to you next time stay free my goose